0: It is an amazing um, piece of scripture. We will not have enough time to really to get into it all. But if there's things you have questions about or things you want to know more about or you just want to generally heckle me, um, all are acceptable. You go to RedeemerMCR.com ask and you can um, enter in questions that um, uh, confidentially. So I don't know where it comes from. And the answer comes in the weekly email that we send out <clears throat> and then... Um, if you're not on that, you're missing out. What I love is that there's this like, there's a black hole here, generally on Sundays. It's like, this is where no one sits. Something, maybe there's like more warmth over there, and we're just like, I don't know. It's where Michael is. Everyone wants to be hanging around Michael. Um, well, Colin um, has recently, it's my four-year-old son, Colin, he has been recently getting into reading chapter books, as in we read them to him, um, which is really great, because now instead of reading two-minute stories, we read... Stories that might take a few days or a few weeks. One uh, family favorite is Roald Dahl's fantastic Mr. Fox. I don't know if you've read this for yourself or seen the Wes Anderson film, which is amazing as well. Um, it's a hit with our family. <clears throat> and um, in this book, if you're not familiar with the story, there are three nasty farmers. And Mr. Fox feeds his family by stealing food from these nasty farmers. And one day he's out stealing food. Uh, farmers don't like their food stolen, so they have a gun, they shoot Mr. Fox in his tail, gets shot off. And then the nasty farmers are like, you know, it's not good enough to just shoo the fox away. We need to find out where he lives so he never comes back. That way he can never steal our stuff. And so they go out, they find out where the fox lives and they're hiding out in front of his house with their guns loaded, just waiting for this fox. And the fox knows this. And so he's not coming out because he doesn't want to die. And his family knows this. And so they're in this predicament. If they don't go out, they won't get food. But if they go out, they'll get shot. So they're kind of slowly starving to death. But Mr. Fox is a very clever fox, and he's unstoppable in his love for his family. And so as these nasty farmers are waiting above ground with their guns, Mr. Fox starts digging tunnels underneath them. Uh, other, animal, other animal families join up. There it is. And eventually Mr. Fox gets to these nasty farmer storage rooms from underneath and he steals like the best chicken, the best cider, the best like whatever the stuff that the nasty farmers make. And he brings back the biggest feast that he or any other like animal family has ever seen or heard of in their life. So Mr. Fox's tail was lost, but in the end he rescued his family and not just his family, other families. And they joined this massive feast together at the end. And when I first read this, I was like, this is a perfect illustration of what happens when Jesus dies. Like Jesus surrendered his life and maybe that looked like defeat, just like shooting the tail off a fox and wait, and knowing where that fox lives and waiting for that fox above the ground. But that's no more defeat than what it was for Mr. Fox. Jesus rescues his family in spectacular and unbelievable ways. And I think another thing that I feel like this story hits on is how similar of a situation we are with the other animals. By ourselves, we're not gonna survive. By ourselves, we're slowly starving to death. Our souls will starve to death by ourselves. We have a problem with the outside world. We'll get shot. That's not very good. We have a problem with in the inside world with ourselves in that our desires are not pure enough to be able to get us to be the kind of people we want to be. We're just not good enough to be good. We're in need of someone else to come and rescue us. And that's what this story is all about in Mark chapter 15, how Jesus rescues us, how Jesus rescues us through His death. So Jesus dies and brings rescue into that. Now we could talk about loads of things in here and it's a massive chunk of scripture, but we're only gonna talk about three things. We'll only be here for five hours. Uh, So we'll talk about a, a few things. The need of a rescue, the process of a rescue and the beauty of being rescued. The need of the rescue first, the process of what that means to be rescued and the beauty of being rescued. So let's start first with this need that we have, the need of a rescue. So in this story, I think it's clear to see that we see unjust systems, we see broken systems, we see um, things that are, that shouldn't be, things are just not the way that they ought to be. And everyone in this, in this story, everyone in, who has power in this story is using it in the wrong way is using it in a broken way. It's in a very kind of unjust way. And probably in many ways, it didn't feel unjust to these people. They're just doing what they do. Like, oh, we crucify people for doing this. And if the crowd wants someone who's innocent, well, that's kind of how it works. Like, they're just kind of like, well, that's kind of how the system is because the system is broken. This is not a, not a just system. An innocent man getting the sham of a trial that mocked by soldiers, all these kind of things, torture, public execution, humiliation, all the things that go on. It's not, it's not a just system. Now these are all probably though, at this time, par for the course. It's what it looked like if you're a criminal. It's what happens. That means maybe we can't always rely on our own systems for justice. Like what are people hundred years from now gonna think of how we did our normal life? Like, oh, that's just how we did normal life. People hundred years now are gonna be completely aghast. Like, I can't believe you live like that, just as we are from people who lived hundred years previous to us. So there's broken systems. Uh, Sometimes we're the victims of those broken systems. Um, if, if you have been around Redeemer for a bit, you know, Steve, who came here uh, to Redeemer fresh out of prison, he had loads of problems, um, but God changed his heart and he still has many problems. He's in prison at the moment, but he's walking with God in the same way many of us will walk with God. I mean, I don't know if you, if you know him, how difficult it was for him to find a place to live. How difficult it was for him to find a job, how difficult it was once he found a place to live for him to be placed in the exact place where he could get to like all the things, that's to, things he shouldn't be in touch with, he knew all people he shouldn't be in touch with, because they're all going to bring him back to his whole life of addictions and all sorts of problems. Like that was a broken system that we got to see like full on. It was obvious. It was not working for Steve. And there's a reason why he's back in prison, because it's a broken system. Now, people who are in charge of probation or housing or all the other things, like I met these people, i talked with these people, they're not evil. They don't want to perpetuate an unjust system, but just kind of the way it is, it's kind of broken. And they all work really, really hard. But if you work really, really hard in a broken system, brokenness happens. So there's victims, but we're not merely the victims of these systems because we also, we perpetuate them. We perpetuate broken systems. And we don't even need to look as far as uh, like government institutions. We can probably look a little closer to home, like in our own families. Like we probably learned some good things from our families and some bad things from our families. If you know my story at all, I've learned some bad things from my families. My father trying to accuse me of a crime I was innocent of so he'd get a little bit jail, less of a jail sentence. That's a whole separate story we're not getting into today. That's a broken way of doing relationships as a father and a son, right? If I don't confront that head on, I will perpetuate that broken system. Now, we all have things and bad ways of doing relationships that if we don't confront head on, we're going to perpetuate that. So we're not only the victims of broken systems, we also perpetuate these. Not because we want to, nobody wants to be broken, it's just kind of how things are. And it's not just broken systems, because who set up these systems? We did. The broken people did. There's a reason why the system is broken, Because we set them up, and there's plenty of broken individuals in this story. We have Pilate, we got the chief priests, those are like religious leaders. We have the individual people in the crowds, like mocking someone as he's dying on a cross, like as he's being executed. And people love to kick people when they're down. We also like to say, I knew it, or I told you so. That's a a way that a very fragile ego gets to get a sense of security. It's like, oh, I always knew this was going to happen. It's in comparison. It's like one of the benefits of watching like a trashy reality TV show. Like, ah, those people are insane. And I know I'm not like those people. Also, it's like very entertaining, as my wife laughs. <laughs>, <laughs> Again, like the, living in that kind of comparison way, I, at least if, if that person is bad, that makes me feel good because it means I'm not as bad. That's a very fragile kind of way to live. It's a very fragile ego to have. And this is how starved souls act if left to themselves. Underground No food to get because we're afraid we're going to get shot. But let's be honest, right? People have kicked us and we've kicked others. Jesus was always very suspicious of crowds and rightfully so because crowds are where we are. They're full of us. Only a few chapters back, these crowds are heralding the king, coming into Jerusalem, saying, Hosanna, laying palm fronds on like a kingly entrance. And then now they want him to die. Like they're choosing him to die over another guy who killed people. The question is, do we hear our mocking voice in that crowd as Jesus gives his life for us? There's a book uh, written by this philosopher and author named Paul Johnson. This book's called Intellectuals, a really thick um, kind of book. What he does in this book is he takes the most brilliant thinkers that we have in kind of modern Western civilization and devotes a chapter to them each. This is like Bertrand Russell, Leo Tolstoy, Um, Jean-Paul Sartre, all these kind of like Ernest Hemingway, Karl Marx, all these kind of people that Western civilization is built upon. And uh, what he does in the first part of every single chapter is he gives like a rundown of their big ideas and how their ideas have influenced civilization, how how their ideas have been positive. And the second half of that chapter, he takes a look at what their own individual lives were like. It was just one train wreck after a train wreck after a train wreck. These people have horrible, horrible lives. They're like deserting their families. Multiple families are horrible. If they're men, they're horrible. To women all the time, like every single chapter, well, this guy hated women. Uh, It's like uh, so many addictions. Like there's this, it was a, a, a perfect cornucopia of how to be a horrible human. And you'd expect someone who taught about like workers' rights or someone who talked about, who would wax poetically about beauty in the world or someone who taught about the power of the rational mind and matters of justice, you'd think their lives would reflect that in some way, but it wasn't the case. All their lives are completely horrible train wrecks. And these are the best humans that we have to look up to. These are the philosophers. These are people who know what's going on. These are people who are telling us how to create governments, telling us how to live. So the question for us is, are these people competent to run my life after so thoroughly ruining their own? Are their ideas life-changing? If so, how come their lives didn't change? I think what that shows, not that, oh, these are horrible, like intellectual people. I think what it shows is the best of us, the best chance we have as mere humans, the best of us with the best intentions, aren't good enough to solve the problem that we have for a rescue. By ourselves, there just, there isn't any hope because not only are we victims of broken systems, not only are we victims of broken people, we perpetuate those broken systems, we are those broken people. And try as we might, the best of us can't help but act in broken ways. Think of the worst thing that has ever happened to you. I know many of you, because I get to know all your stories, which is amazing for a pastor to have. Um, very horrible things have gone on in some of your lives. For all of us, though, there are worse things that could go on. Also, think of the worst that you've done to others. You could do a lot worse to others, and you might with your life. Given the right situation, I think all of us are able to commit the most horrible acts towards each other. So we look with disbelief at broken systems, the broken people in this story, but these people are us. The reason why the crowds are here aren't for us to be like, oh, thank God, they're horrible, or aren't they horrible? It's a mirror of who we are, really. We don't have the answers, and we really need to be rescued. And I'm sick of just kind of being part of the status quo. I don't want to perpetuate this. I want want this world to be different. I want to see change in a way that I cannot actually bring myself. I know you guys do too, and that's why we're here. We're all learning about that. Hopefully, we're sick of our own brokenness and are not kind of dishonestly polite about it. So we're in need... Our world is in need, and this is why Jesus dies. This is why Mark 15 exists, is for this reason. So let's look at the process of this rescue. It's a few things. Um, one, Jesus is alone. So he's outside the city walls. Like the city's not gonna have him. He's outside the walls by himself. Political leaders, Jesus a liability. He's not one of us, get him out of here. Religious leaders, Jesus a threat. He's not one of us, get him out of here. The crowd would rather have someone who killed someone previously than uh, someone who brought people to life. And so Jesus is dying and the crowd is finding new ways of making fun of him. The crowd, they don't want him in their crowd. They want him out. The soldier, is Jesus an opportunity to mock as Jesus himself, but also for the Jews in general. Like this is the weak king a weak people deserve. And even those who were crucified next to him on either side, the way that Mark tells his story, as they're dying, they're hurling insult at Jesus. Even they don't want him. Criminals don't even want him. So he's completely alone. He's also humiliated. So the crowds, of course, one day they're all about Jesus, sing Hosanna, treat him as a king. The next, they're not. Jesus never got too cozy with crowds and we can see why. They, we are fickle. Also, I mean, just the idea of a human being questioning a holy God, trying to hold a holy, perfect God up to a broken system of justice... This is kind of ridiculous. Like what in the world? Like even just the idea of this a trial even going on itself is ridiculous. And as Jesus is dying, people love to rub their self-righteousness in other people's face and there's no exception here. It's like, aha, I knew it. What are you gonna do now? Save yourself. Now he's also tortured and Mark doesn't dwell on the gruesomeness of the cross. Mark is a very kind of generally... Um, this is what happened, kind of quick storyteller person. He's very straightforward as he's been with the rest of the book. It kind of briefly says he's flogged. Being flogged means taking strips of like meat out of your back. It would have been like filleted almost. His wrists were nailed to a beam. So Romans were really good at crucifying people because they did it a lot. So what they would do, they would take a nail and put the nail in a wrist without um, hitting the wrist bones so that you could hang on the cross for longer and make your death even longer, more excruciating. So he, uh, he would have to push up from his feet, otherwise, if not, then you end up suffocating because you're, basically your lungs collapse in on itself. It's a process for hours, going on hours and hours. In some cases, days. Like Pilate was amazed how quickly Jesus died. Imagine during something horrible that long. We actually have a word for this experience. It's, it's excruciating," is the word. It's from the Latin, meaning "from the cross." It's where the word comes from. And eventually he died. He is executed. I think because the cross has become the Christian symbol, that symbol removes a little bit of the horror and the humiliation that he experienced. It's like an electric chair or a lethal injection. I don't see too many electric chair earrings because it's kind of a gross, disgusting kind of thing. It's something that's reserved for criminals, for people who are not like us. It's bloody. But really, Jesus died just like all the previous criminals who died in the same kind of way. It was bloody for everybody else as well. In a way, for Jesus to be crucified as a criminal is kind of fitting because he spent his life with criminals. It was fitting for him to spend his death being surrounded by criminals. So in some ways, his death has a, it very much was like a common criminal, but in other ways, it's different because his physical suffering was really bad. The emotional like suffering must've been really bad, but something that was beyond that, something that we will actually never experience is the spiritual suffering None of this compares to the spiritual suffering that Jesus and only Jesus experienced. When he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing something that he has never before. Never has he experienced that. There's a rift between the the relationship between the father and the son. So in all time that has ever existed, That rift has never been there before. The Father and the Son and the Spirit have always been together perfectly. As in like, so much so as in like, your arm has always been a part of your body kind of thing. It's always been there. (laughs) They lived in perfect harmony, but not now. Why was this so horrible? Why all this violence? Why did Jesus have to go to these lengths? Like surely God could have just like forgiven people and moved on. Well, what we see in the horror of Jesus's death is our own brokenness on display what the Bible calls sin. It was our horror that caused Jesus to go through his. And Jesus wanted to rescue us from that. Jesus doesn't want us to stay in our own horror. And so he had to take that on himself and put it to death. He knew we don't have what it takes to make things right. And he wants to make things right. And so he had to take it on himself. It's a horrible process, but the reason why it's so horrible because Jesus does not want us to experience what he experienced on the cross. And if we follow him, that can be true. So this is a little bit of the process that Mark gives us of how Jesus rescued us. This was the cost that he bore. There's a process of making a yellow paint. Um, This yellow color is called gamboge. I think it's Chinese or Japanese. I forget what the origin is, but it's made in this really kind of interesting way. Sap is collected over years into these ugly pellets So, those are just like pellets of kind of condensed sap um, over years and years and years. And what what you do is you take these pellets and you ground them down, you like pulverize them, you destroy them, you destroy them, you destroy them over and over and over till they get to this like really rich orangey yellow kind of powdery substance. Uh, Now, what the purpose of this powdery substance eventually is to get is to create a paint color that is this yellowy orange kind of color called gamboge. So these pellets that were previously really ugly, if I can get there, ah, can be used to help create a painting with a beautiful color. To be used as an instrument of beauty, these ugly pellets had to be ground down. These ugly pellets had to be destroyed. They had to be completely pulverized beyond recognition. Like this is completely different than the picture two two pictures ago. And there's no other way to get this particular color unless you go through that process. Beauty had to come from brokenness for this. For Jesus, beauty has to come from brokenness. For new life, the old has to die. Now, whatever you want to say about God and suffering and how it works out in this world, we have to say that God takes his own medicine. He doesn't leave us to it. Jesus was ground down. He was pulverized. He was destroyed beyond recognition in many ways. What we see on the cross is not the glorious son of God, even though it is. And in this, he took our brokenness upon himself. What we see in the horror and that destruction is our own brokenness. As much as Jesus died, as much as he's been ground down, that's as far as your own brokenness, your own darkness and your life has been destroyed, has been ground down, has been pulverized, beyond recognition, no longer part of who you are anymore. Because beauty comes from his brokenness. So in a strange way, this horror becomes our comfort not because we're you know, masochistic in this way. Because if, if there's any doubt and the brokenness in your life that's been put to death, what we get to do is we get to look to Jesus' death. Your sin is as dead as Jesus is in this story. Jesus was dead, dead, and so is your sin. If you're ever in doubt, ask yourself, did Jesus die? Yes, he died. That means all who follow him, you get to be relieved of everything that holds you back of everything in you that you are afraid of and scared of and don't even share with others, of everything outside that is victimizes you, we get to be freed from all of that. So does he really care about me? Is he really there? If he is, does he even care about me at all? Am I really a Christian? Can I really actually be used for something larger than myself because I'm so horrible? I keep messing up with the same stuff over and over and over. Can I keep coming back to Jesus? The answer is yes, yes, yes. Because Jesus' death is a horror, but it comes to comfort to all those who follow him because all that holds us back, all those things that we're afraid of can be destroyed through what Jesus has destroyed. So we talked about beauty coming from brokenness. Let's talk specifically about what that beauty looks like. So the process is horrible, and there's a comfort there that comes out of that. Um, how does the story teach us about the beauty that comes from Jesus' brokenness? This is what it means to be rescued, the beauty of being rescued. Two things here I just want us to focus on. Um, first is the curtain that gets torn. The second is a centurion that gives this confession of who Jesus is. Um, so we'll start here with this curtain. The curtain is torn in two. Now, that, um, Mark doesn't really kind of talk about why that's a big deal, but it is a massive deal. What happened is you had in the Old Testament, and in Jesus' time here, you had a temple where you go and worship God. There's three parts of this temple. There's the outer courts, there's the holy place, and that's supposed to represent the land, both of those two things represent land. And then you have the most holy place which is supposed to represent heaven, where where God dwells, only God dwells. Only one human was able to go in there one time a year. And that's, and between the most holy place and all the other places was this big massive curtain, 80 feet high, super thick. It's like purple and, and blues, and also it's like embroidered linen, supposed to represent the universe. That was what separated the most holy place from all the other places. It separated heaven and earth. It separated where God and his people would meet and separate how, how people would worship God. And so um, what happened here is this curtain is now ripped, it's destroyed. Is torn in two, like completely done away with. So that destroys something and it also opens something up. It destroys everything that has separated us from God previously. What happened here in, in time and place and history here. The broken systems, the broken people in those systems, us, the broken people who perpetuate those systems, everything is done away with, ripped into, destroyed and done away with. So we, each of us can have individual access to a God that was previously veiled. This is something completely new and crazy and amazing that it is almost like a throwaway sentence the way that Mark says it. This is a God who cares for us and loves us more than anything else we could think up of. Think of up. Think of? How are you supposed to say that? Apparently it doesn't help with grammatical construction. <laughs> okay, so that's been destroyed. What's been opened up with this, with this torn curtain? What we see is God completely Like uh, accessible in a way that he was never able to be accessed before. God is now clearly seen. God's glory is now released in a way that it wasn't previously. And we see that in in Acts as as the Holy Spirit continues this crazy kind of way of expanding the church in ways that are kind of almost like uh, unexplainable. God's protecting presence is no longer limited to like a little chamber in one geographical area. God is no longer tied to geography. It's something bigger than that. And what that means is we are now walking temples. We are where heaven and earth meet because God resides in us. We are where we can fully worship God because God resides in us. We are where uh, God is with his people because God resides in us. And that curtain within us has been torn, has been destroyed, done away with. God's taken residence in our hearts and we take him with us wherever we go. So that's the curtain. That's amazing news. That's crazy news. And there's more. Stop there, we'd all go home, we'd be happy. But there's more, because you have the centurion. And this is uh, this is a very Mark way of, of talking about something. So Mark, as we've, if you've been here for a while, you know, <clears throat> generally, the way Mark portrays Jesus is most people don't get him. They're afraid of him, or they're amazed. Being amazed doesn't mean you're in awe. It means like, what in the world's going on there? I have no, I can't understand. That's, that's basically what Mark is like. Three times do you get this kind of confession of Jesus being the son of God in Mark. When Mark writes in the very first verse, so the author, when Peter makes a confession to Mark in chapter eight, which is like the middle of the book, like the hinge of the book. And here at the end, where Jesus is dying from a centurion, it's really weird for a centurion to make this, um, make this confession. And so if Mark is including something that he doesn't do very often, he does that for a purpose. Here's some reasons why uh, I think Mark has included this. The first is Jesus's death itself has a transforming experience. The centurion experienced the death of the son of God. That in itself, is a transforming experience. The fact we're teaching about it now means it's going to have an effect on you. The Bible says it will either grow us more warm towards Jesus or more callous towards Jesus. That's how it works. Your heart will either grow towards him or away from him. So his death itself has a transforming experience. The second, for a centurion to confess this, he was a symbol of political power like the Romans, that's bad. They're occupying the Jews' territory. Also, he wasn't a Jew himself. He's a Gentile. And this is like, if, if you could, for the Jewish audience, you could not find someone who is further away from Jesus than a Roman centurion. I mean, was this guy one of the guys who mocked Jesus? Did he put the crown of thorns on him? Was he the guy who like put a wrist in? Like, I don't know. But we do know that if someone who is that far away from God clearly sees who Jesus is, that means hope for everybody, regardless of your background regardless of where you are in your gender identity, regardless of where you are in your sexual identity, regardless of your class background, how much money you make or what all the other kind of things that we love to classify ourselves as. Jesus is a great equalizer. Jesus' death is a great equalizer because none of all those things I just mentioned are strong enough to keep anyone away from Jesus' unstoppable love. Now for the centurion to say son of God is actually really surprising as well because the centurion being a centurion would swear that allegiance to Caesar. That was Caesar's title. Caesar was son of God. So now the centurion is saying, you're the son of God. Now as a centurion lives a life congruent with that confession, if he's gonna live like the way that he, what he's seeing here, that means his whole world changes. Like his, what does that mean for his job? Can he still work in that job? What does that mean for his other work colleagues who sworn son of God allegiance to Caesar? Is he married? What does that mean for his house? Like so many questions. And those are the same exact questions we have, isn't it? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean for Jesus to truly be the Son of God in our life? It's very inconvenient. It doesn't make things easy. It's difficult. That's not, we don't, we're not promised an easier life. We are promised a better life, but it's not easier. The same kind of problem that the centurion had, we would have because we were just as far away from Jesus when we saw him. Now, may we have that same kind of understanding and may our lives be able to sing out that same kind of confession. Oh, surely this is the son of God. If we say that, we sing it on Sundays. It's very easy to sing on Sundays. If we sing that, if we say that, if we attest to that on Sundays, what is that like for the rest of our lives? When that Thursday morning comes around you're just tired from the week or whatever the other thing might be. And Paul later on writes um, something that's helpful, a concise summary of what the cross is all about in 2 Corinthians <coughs> This is basically describing what's going on here in Jesus' death. God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. God takes all the bad, we get all the good. That's the Cliff Notes version. Now, what did God do in this? He took all the bad. More than that, he gives us all the good. Not just taking all the bad stuff and keeping us neutral. He gives us all the good stuff. And what do we do that? Oh, our job is to contribute to the bad and receive the good. That seems a bit one-sided, it's a little insane. It's like going to buy a car. You have your money in hand. I'm going to buy this car. Maybe you don't have any money. You need a car. The salesman gives you the car and also gives you the money for that car. That's ridiculous. He would go out of business very quickly. It does not make any sense. That's completely backwards to the way this world works. And thankfully, it's completely backwards to the way this world works. We do not need something that works more in the way this world is. We need something that's completely different, completely other. Something that really seems to be too good to be true. But what if it is true? If this is true, if what we just read is true, that changes everything. That changes everything. If it's not true, Jesus is either mental or evil, which makes us mental or evil. We might be mental, hopefully not evil. But if it is true, because Jesus died, we don't. We are the crowd. We're fickle, easily manipulated, praising Jesus when it suits us, wanting his death when it doesn't. We're the soldiers thinking we have it all together, looking down our nose at meekness and gentleness. We're the religious leaders. We see Jesus as a threat to get the kind of life we want. We're the political leaders searching after power, overlooking the one who has the most power. And Jesus sees it all, experiences it all, and still goes to the cross, never changes his mind. He doesn't have a second thought. He still chooses to shake people back to life out of their dead existence of being the status quo. This is the beauty of being rescued. Because of the curtain tearing, we can surrender like the way the centurion did with our words and our lives. Now, because Jesus was alone, we never have to be. He will always be with us. Because Jesus was humiliated, we can have an identity that's stronger and deeper than our own humiliation. And we don't have to live off the opinions of others. Because Jesus was tortured, we don't have to torture ourselves over our past, over all the things that kind of come up of not being good enough in the moment. Because Jesus was put to death We get to go beyond living as the walking dead now as walking temples and our lives are opened up to life. Through following Jesus, we're rescued. That's a one-time event. But that one-time event continues to give us rewards over and over and over again, continues to give out dividends because beauty arising from the brokenness of Jesus means the possibility of beauty coming from brokenness within all those who follow him. So if you have any brokenness inside of you, this is really, really good news. We all carry that, don't we? And we all contribute to the brokenness of this world, but Jesus transforms it into something more. This can give meaning to what otherwise would be meaningless suffering. There's a writer um, who wrote a great sentence kind of encapsulating this saying, one of the profound paradoxes of Christianity is to be found in the fact that the one who is not able to carry his own cross is the one who enables us to carry ours. The one who is not able to carry his own cross is the one who enables us to carry ours. That's amazing. (coughs) And what we read thousands of years before Jesus comes is a promise that God is gonna rescue his people. And in that promise, we find the one who's bringing death is going to crush the heel of the one who's bringing life. But the one who's bringing life is gonna destroy completely the one who's bringing death. And this is in Genesis three, like the very beginning of, of the Bible, just like Mr. Fox lost his tail. And like Mr. Fox, Jesus comes back to rescue his family in the most kind of spectacular and unbelievable ways. As um, Mr. Fox is getting back to his family, he's um, looking forward to this feast that he has. He's, he's, he's gonna participate in this feast with not only his family, but other families joined in. He's smelling these smells. He cannot wait to get back to his bride. And we read this um, quick little uh, kind of song that he has he skip, as he's skipping back home. He says, home again, swiftly I glide, back to my beautiful bride. And this is what this meal represents. This meal represents a home. It represents something more than what this world offers us. It represents a beauty that could arise from our own brokenness because beauty arose from his brokenness. And this bread represents Jesus's body going to the lengths that no one else could go to so that he'd win us back to himself. And the cup represents everything broken in us it was all poured out, overflowing. And Jesus took that on so that it doesn't exist in us anymore. So now when we drink this cup, what we get to drink is not wrath, is not punishment, is not destruction, it's life. And that's why we do this every week because we need to remember that because it's, it's so easy to forget that. It's so easy to forget that story of if we don't come to Jesus, our souls will starve as much as if I don't drink, if I don't eat, I will die. If we don't come to Jesus, our souls will die. This is a process that started such a long time ago, but was finished with Jesus on the cross and God's patient love has been rolling out ever since. So this is for anyone who follows Jesus, anyone who wants to be a part of Jesus's rescue, anyone who's participating in the beauty that comes from Jesus, If this isn't you and this table isn't for you yet what we do is we um, grab a little piece of the bread, we dip it in the wine or the juice as we sing together. And what, get, what we get to do is as, as we come up, <clears throat> let's have the mindset of, uh, it's nothing special about the bread, nothing special about the wine, but it's, it's the act of being able to worship God through this kind of tangible way. It's supposed to bring our, our hearts and minds closer to Jesus. What we should be saying is this is the nourishment that we need for our lives. We need to be following Jesus in in all the kind of ways that he's called us to. There's so many parts of us that aren't and Jesus knows that he's fine with that. He just wants to take the very small next little step as he continues to rescue us from our souls starving. So basically we say, we can't go on. We will simply die unless we embrace the cross. If we aren't relying on Jesus to rescue us in all of our needs, relying on something else and that something else is never gonna be good enough. Jesus knows that. So he did what was needed. By ourselves, we're in need of a rescue. Jesus went through this process of rescue, taking that cost on himself. Now all of us, through a simple gift, get to enjoy the beauty of being rescued. Let me pray.